Hi, I'm Bill Bennett, and welcome to The Bill Bennett Show, the only podcast dedicated to translating Trump and explaining what's going on in Washington, D.C. without the hysteria and the, quote, fake news, close quote, you hear in the mainstream media. Today, I'm excited to bring you a brand new conversation with Steve Wynn. Many of you know Steve is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, home to some of the best five-star resorts in the world. In fact, Forbes is celebrating its upcoming 100th anniversary issue by selecting the 100 greatest living business minds. And Steve Wynn is one of them. Because of his incredible career, Steve has been friends with Donald Trump for over 30 years. He knows Donald Trump, and he understands him. And he really likes him which is one of the reasons why at the beginning of 2017, Steve took on the job of finance chair of the Republican National Committee. And since he took over, the RNC has blown away the Democrats in fundraising. In the month of July alone, the RNC outraised the DNC by $6 million. So when it comes to translating Trump and explaining the Republican agenda, there may not be anyone better than Steve Wynn. Listen, this is amazing, though. You have set records, broken records uh, for fundraising. In any term, in any administration, this would be extraordinary. But a lot of people are saying that, you know, there's some controversy relating to our president. You know, there's some differences of opinion, even the Republican Party. You have done an amazing job. Um, well, you, Bill, but just yeah. uh, the fundraising, the, the, the really record-breaking fundraising success, uh, has been through the efforts of Ronna McDaniels, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Walters, my finance director, and that whole army of kids, folks, men and women that are that work at the RNC headquarters in Washington. Uh, I'm sort of a hood ornament in that effort, and I do make some phone calls and, and do some events, but it's a team effort. But whatever records we've broken are directly the result of the perception that America's on the wrong track and that Donald Trump, in spite of the excitement and the controversial rhetoric that, 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 that's always being discussed by the press, the, the, the backbone of the Republican Party and business people and labor union people are writing checks because they don't like the status quo. Right. They want less regulation. They want their health care reformed. They don't like the fact that they're, that they're paying uh, 30, 40, 50 percent more for the same coverage they had before the Affordable Care Act came to their supposed rescue. It's been a disaster. They'd like to have their taxes, the tax system simplified and reformed. And the issue of immigration, uncontrolled immigration, seems to all the average people that I've met as a complete turning away from the rule of law and respect for law that all the rest of these people are required to obey. But if, if it's true that a person can walk into this country and unilaterally decide they're entitled to all the privileges of citizenship, then what is the government all about? Nobody's ever argued that a, 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 a democratically elected government doesn't have the right to control immigration into its nation based upon the needs of its citizens. But now, all of a sudden, it seems that you can walk into America, stand your ground, and say, I'm here, and I get everything, and the government is irrelevant. That kind of 
complete disregard for the rule of law has upset people very deeply. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party and its elected representatives that try and demagogue this, this event, uh, this kind of discussion by saying, oh, we're heartless, and they twist and distort, it isn't, re it isn't working. As a matter of fact, the debate that, that has taken the, the most recent turns is underlining the aggravation and exacerbating and making worse the frustration that the average American has about us immigration system and a complete that's broken, but not just broken. Uh, there seems to be a large segment of elected officials who are willing to openly disregard the law of the yeah. land yes. and spit in its eye. Yes. And if the Democrats think that that's working for them, uh, it's the same kind of confusion that led to the results of the last three elections in which of 10, 12, 14, 16, in which the Democrats lost governorships, state senators, state assemblymen, attorney generals, the presidency, congressmen, and senators. They, they seem to be very thick-headed about this. Folks, regular, my employees, folks around the country, union members, they're sick and tired of this, and they should be. It's really outrageous. Yep. And that's where all the money's coming from to the RNC. They don't give a damn about Steve Wynn, but they're, they're trying to vet and get some relief from this kind of abuse. Well, they give something of a damn about Steve Wynn. <clears throat> I know, because I talk to people about Steve Wynn. <clears throat> you're right, of course, about Rana and the RNC and the good folks there. But you're making a big difference. Every, 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 everyone knows that. I want to get into a little more of the conversation that you hear from people when you call them. I asked you last time, I asked you, you know, do you get an earful? Do people say, how about this? How about that? And you said, yeah. And then, and then, the, and then you have a serious conversation, and then, and then you try to get them to contribute. But tell us more about what you hear from people when they're <laughs> trying to use you as a conduit to the well, president or to Paul Ryan or to Mitch McConnell. All the, uh, all the fancy pants Republicans, uh, <laughs> the business types, yeah. they say, why don't you ask the president not to tweet? <laughs> they said, oh, Donald, they sure. know that President Trump and I are friends. I, I try and refrain from calling him Donald, uh, uh -huh. which I've done for 32 years. Uh -huh. But President Trump uh, is going to be 71 years old or is 71. He's not going to change. He is. Uh -huh. What you see is what you get. Yeah. His choice of, of, of cabinet was great, best ever. His basic ideas about reforming health care, about fixing the tax code about removing strangulating regulations that have been a wet blanket on jobs. Wet blanket means Barack Obama and his regulations. Those ideas are great. Everybody loves them, but the, the business guys, would, they get nervous about the tweeting. Yeah. The fact that, that President Trump is an extremely strong personality, outspoken, is probably the reason, A, that he got elected, and B, why the Democrats are so violently reacting to him. He's their worst nightmare. Yeah. They thought they were on a track to socialism with Barack and then with Bernie Sanders, who will promise anybody anything and never explain how to pay for it because he's strictly trying to 
to snow people. He's a liar. He, and he knows he's a liar, but it seems to work on low information voters. The trouble is, they're, the, the, they're, the Democrats' idea of low information voters was wrong. People don't have the, the, the gullibility that the Democrats think. People aren't dumb. The, the working people of America, they smell bull when they hear bull. And that's why the Democrats are, are in trouble. And that's why Bernie Sanders is never going to be president of the United States. And, and they underestimate the real nature of the public. America is a center-right country. <laughs> we are not a leftist country. <laughs> and every time a political party or a candidate tries to jam that down the throat of Americans, they regurgitate. They spit it up. I don't know what the Democrats think happened to them. I know they all thought that Donald Trump was not a strong opponent. They underestimated him completely, and they misunderstood their, their ridiculous message of free everything and don't worry about it, someone else will pay for it. That kind of idiocy has, has run out of time. Trump is their worst enemy, their worst nightmare, because he won't play that game with them. Yes. And so Trump speaks up. Trump calls it for what it is. And they haven't had anybody be quite that indelicate, quite that crude, so to speak. Mm -hmm. the, the, the old fashioned idea was, well, let's not really ruffle anybody's feathers. Trump is a feather ruffler. <laughs> and, and, he, and he doesn't know how to do it any other way. Right, right. And when we're, we're getting all this money from people that like feathers ruffled. Trump is a feather ruffler. What a great line. The audience won't forget that. Well, we have to leave it there for today, Steve. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, special surprise. Here is my friend and former colleague, Laura Ingram, host of The Laura Ingram Show and host of the upcoming show on Fox called, what's it called, Laura? The Ingram Angle, Bill. The Ingram Angle. Oh, I've, I've, yes. I've felt those elbows a couple times. Uh, you know something? I when you say I was your colleague, that's really that's really funny. That's really nice of you, because of course I was just a a little peon speechwriter for the undersecretary of education all those years ago. But um, what that that was fun. It was a formative years for me in, <laughs> in learning about writing and and right. government. And um, you were a great boss. Weren't you the pitcher on the softball team? I was good at that. I was, okay. uh, you know, there are a few things that I can do well in, in, in baseball, sports. I'm pretty good at that, yeah. Okay. Well, you work for me and you work for me well. Then you broke my heart and went to work for my brother. You left me for my uh, brother. Anyway. One of the few. One of the so, few. <laughs> so be it. Tell us about the upcoming TV show. We know you're very limited so, time. Yeah, we so, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it starts at the end of uh, October. I have a book tour before that. So um, it's a book I wrote called Billionaire at the Barricades, Populist Revolution from Reagan to Trump. So that's coming out on October 10th. So I have to do some appearances for that. And then we get going on uh, the new show. And we're going to do uh, some of the same uh, things that I do on the radio, politics, but with more of a cultural bent because I think I think we find that while politics are interesting, they're not. Politics does not really occupy a lot of uh, the time of most people. It's a very small subset of the lives of, of 
you know, regular working class Americans like the people I came from. But they do see their they do see their country and their history and their education slipping away. And so we're going to we're going to highlight those stories of, of what's missing in America today and where we can find the goodness and how we can challenge uh, the more sort of negative uh, assumptions and uh, some of the uh, more, uh, I'd say, uh, bad effects of, of big government and and uh, poor policy. So we're going to have we're going to have a lot of fun. And it's a late night show. So it's uh you know, it's 10 o'clock late for some people on the East Coast, but, you know, it gives you, it gives you a lot more flexibility because people have already heard the headlines of the day. They sure, want a little, sure. little more at the end of the day. Well, Pat, you know, Patrick Moynihan, who introduced me for my first government job, said, uh, I remember the quote, uh, culture is more important than politics. Politics could influence culture, but culture is where it comes from. So uh, this will be very exciting, and you're the right person to do it. You're really the right Thank person. Thank you so much. Don't forget my phone number. I'm available. I've tread these waters a couple times. You better be coming. You better be coming on. Okay. My gosh. Okay. Okay. You, you better be. I'm going to rely on you. Are you kidding <laughs> okay. me? Okay. Bless your heart. Uh, U.N. speech. Just a couple of words on the U.N. speech. I thought it was great. I thought it was the best speech since the Polish Poland speech, which I loved. Uh, I agree. I think going uh, going to the belly of the beast at the U.N., he's criticized it so often, uh, but saying, look, if America falls down, we're not going to be any good to the rest of the na- uh, rest of the world. We, we want to be a, a strong and powerful ally, but that means we have to take care of business at home, like all of you need to do for your own countries. So he, he, he emphasizes sovereignty, which is music to the ears of, of someone who believes that we've lost a lot of our independence, these international institutions. And the left goes crazy. Like, sovereignty. I yeah. can't believe he's talking about sovereignty. That's what tin pot dictators do. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. That's what our founders uh, uh, talked about. It's a hallmark of, of the American understanding that we're always going to be a free and independent nation, not caught up with unnecessary foreign entanglements that intrude right. upon our, our, our people's right. free choice and, and our Constitution and our Declaration and so I, I thought it, I thought it was yeah. he really hit all the right notes in the speech, and I think it was actually pretty well delivered. You know, he doesn't he doesn't love teleprompter speeches, but I actually think he did a he did a good job, and I personally like the Rocket Man reference. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, the Rocket Man, Rocket Man. That's right. funny. Get you out your little... Get, there's your culture, right? Get out your Elton John, everybody. Exactly. Right? Okay, Laura. We promise that take up a lot of your time. Goodness gracious, Laura Ingram show. Ingram's Angle, Laura Ingram's Angle, coming up on Fox, book tour. Oh, and there are three children, aren't there? You have three, oh. three beautiful children. Okay. Oh, yeah. That sounds like they're an afterthought, Bill. No, I mean, they're not. On. No, I, I know the St. Augustine, the Ordo Amorum, they're first, right? They are first. Oh. Thank you, Laura. All right, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, President Trump delivered his first major address to the United Nations earlier this week. Here to discuss that speech and a couple other things, and the, of course the inevitable liberal outrage at the speech, is one of our favorite guests, Lord Conrad Black. Conrad Black is a former member of the United Kingdom House of Lords. He's also He's a still writer. a member, Bill. My goodness. Yeah, I'm sure that. your listeners can tell from my heavy English accent. Conrad Black is a member, was not thrown out of the House. Conrad Black is a member of the... UK House of Lords. He's also a writer, historian, and author of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom, and also Richard M. Nixon, A Life in Full. Conrad, great to talk with you again. Uh, thanks for having me back, Bill. 
pivot to the Democrats? Uh, we're supposed to be translating Trump, explaining Trump on this show. Is he pivoting to the Democrats? Should we be angry at uh, I wouldn't put it that way exactly, but he, uh, I think that uh, what happened, and I, and I don't mean to be pedantic here and say more than you want me to, but the, as we all know, and all your listeners would know, Trump attacked the whole system, all the factions of both parties, and the national media, the lobbyists, Hollywood, Wall Street, everybody. And uh, he won the presidential election. He was running against the Bushes as much as the Clintons and Obama, but he won that, but the war with the other factions continued, and, and the Democrats were so startled and shaken by the election result that they were in the traditional denial and quickly fastened on to this complete nothing burger that they could uh, impeach him or completely immobilize him just by com- total obstruction, which they would do righteously because of his evident turpitude. Uh, they could dismiss him as as a, a do-nothing and um, incapable president and possibly have him removed because of uh, semi-treasonable collusion with the foreign power and rigging the election, all of it complete nonsense. But he had to, he had to wait until the balance of legal realities, recriminations and... Um, tentative conclusions on raking over the ashes of the last election uh, created a different balance. And it is now, I think, fairly clear that the Democrats have more legal problems than the Republicans do, although Trump has been quite conciliatory. They didn't indict uh, Lois Lerner, for example, the specialist in persecuting conservative PACs. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, he was able to, to have a productive discussion with the Democratic leaders in the Congress. Prior to that, his own Republican leaders, McConnell and Ryan and others, were just sitting on their hands thinking they held the balance of power between a president of their party they didn't like and and the Democrats, whom they didn't much care for either, but at least they accept their legitimacy to be there. And now I think uh, since, since the balance of forces legally and in public relations and perception terms has changed, he is able to have a discussion with the Democrats, and they have to take him seriously and not just dismiss him as moral pariah and leper. And so we're, we're getting some movement. Now he is holding the balance of power between the Republicans and the Democrats, and there are now hopes of the system coming out of gridlock and actually accomplishing something. I, I, I know I'm sorry to be so long-winded. I want to filibuster, no, 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 but no, no, I think good. it's a bit complicated. Yeah, I know it is a bit complicated. I love your phrase in your essay about uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer sitting on the couch in the Oval Office purring like tabbies, I think you said. <laughs> of course, this was unforgivable to parts of the left who then screamed at Nancy Pelosi uh, the next time they saw her. After all, collaborating with Hitler is, is, is inexcusable, right? I mean, this has really kind of thrown them into another kind of confusion, Yes. That's right. She was supping with the devil without a long spoon. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think you're right. I think this is uh, now a, a situation rife with opportunity. Let's talk about the opportunity the president took just a day or two ago, and that is the speech at the United Nations. What did you think of it, and what is its import? I thought it was a brilliant speech, uh, very well delivered and very well put together in in, in excellent sequence i i had two slight reservations about it i i the way it was phrased it allowed uh his enemies who of course will uh 
perform gymnastic feats worthy of, of the Olympic Games um, to, to, to misconstrue what he says. And, uh, the reference to the destruction of North Korea uh, was not, as it was portrayed by some of his critics, an outright threat to, uh, to to drop hydrogen bombs on North Korea and kill the entire civil population. No one was suggesting that. Uh, he, well, what he, and I, I think he might have used a slightly uh, less ambiguous phrase. I, what he really meant was the destruction of their military capacity and regime change. He was certainly not talking about deliberately inflicting uh, deaths on, on on the civil population. And um, secondly, I, I, I think if there had just been one sentence added in the Iran section, uh, it would have made it a little clearer where he was going. I mean, as I understand it, he may or may not give the 90-day certification, but there doesn't actually appear to be a reason not to do it logically. Yeah. Yeah. But he may he may choose not to do it for reasons that aren't strictly related to the treaty. Now, I, I, it's not for me to judge this, but if he wants to do that, I'm not sure that this is the time to do it. But, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not qualified to say. But they, I, I think he could have, he could have been, he could have spared himself a certain amount of the vintage hand wringing and running around yeah. like decapitated chickens, expressing uh, through you know what's what's left of their vocal equipment, the fear that that he's he's going to bring goodness knows what mayhem down in the Middle East prematurely. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not very respectful of the people who engage in panic mongering over everything he says, but on the other hand, I don't see any reason to to incite them at this point. Lord Black, uh, fair enough. Would those asterisks tell us why this was an important speech? And was it a change uh, in, in Donald Trump? A change Trump, the, the coming from the no more? head of the U.S. government. I don't think it's a change from, from Mr. Trump personally. I think it's quite consistent with what he said before. But uh, we have, you know, those of us who are not Americans have seen you know, we've seen it. We've we've, we've seen it moved to George W. Bush's crusade for democracy, and I, I, I think uh, most would concede, possibly even Mr. Bush himself, a slight degree of insouciance about about sponsoring uh, substantial changes in the composition of foreign governments and their method of selection. And and uh, of course, there was a after the nine eleven. Outrageous! There was a steady state of some sort of war going on, or, or all all the way through to the present. Uh, and then we had a, a again. I don't want to be gratuitous, but a, a virtual 180 degree turn, where American foreign policy appeared to be simply to ask its allies and its traditional enemies to change places, and uh, Israel became a. a, a, a state with whom relations were quite frosty, and there was a prodigious effort to placate the Iranians. And um, I think we are now back to a definition of the national interest, and and with it a, a, a statement of a determination to to have the, the means and the will to protect that interest as defined, but no will and, and a refusal to get into adventurism that uh, that that would commit the U.S. to 
uh, nation building or military activity in areas where its own national interest is not engaged. And yet some people who celebrated the speech, applauded the speech, I've noticed a couple of columns on, uh, on, the, on the conservative side, or Republican side at least, said this was a departure from the America first. This is the end of the isolationist Trump. Maybe not the kind of adventurism you're talking about or nation building, but at least the kind of engagement, um, the announcement of an engagement with the world that they were not sure he was uh, interested in doing. Uh, Fair? Uh, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not so sure that it's fair. I mean, I, I, the, the reception lapsed just for a second in the middle of your sentence, but the, the, this person you mentioned claimed that the president was, was purporting to be engaged in the world in a way that he took to be a change from his previous position? Yes, that uh, America first yeah. and, uh, and so oh, on. You see, I think that's a lot of nonsense. I mean, okay. America first... It was never meant by Donald Trump to to be a, to have anything to do with when that phrase was used by Colonel Lindbergh and others trying right, to right. Uh, dissuade and discourage President Roosevelt and the country from uh, from finding a moral and strategic distinction between Churchill and Hitler. It had to be one of the more insane campaigns in modern American history. If you can't see the distinction in the national interest of the United States and, and for Western civilization generally between Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. You should go to a bath chair in a quiet place and stay there for a long time. But Donald um, uh, Trump never meant it like that. It was never an isolationist statement. All he meant was, and here I think you're absolutely right, that, uh, that it, it was a very distinct clarification of what he meant, namely... Good. Positive, but not aggressive nationalism. It was my job, he said, in effect, is to represent the interests of the United States. All of you have the task of representing the interests of the countries you represent, and, and we can do that in a civilized, reasonable manner, and we should all respect that all countries have their legitimate interests, and we should all try and accommodate each other. Uh, America first, by him, meant uh, not submergence or, or the end of perceived or real submergence of American interests in uh, trade matters, strategic matters, uh, national security questions, uh, to, the, to the preferences of others. It meant an end to that subordination. It did not mean isolationism, and it certainly did not mean any form of, of domineering or overbearing imperialism. Let's, uh, uh, but, and some people legitimately have difficulty understanding what he means because he, there are sometimes ambiguities um, and some people are, are are simply malicious and will impute to him yeah. the worst possible construction on everything he says yeah and they have an interest or vested interest in confusing or or distorting everything he says let's pick up two pieces of this in the two or three minutes we have left Conrad uh, back to your comment about Iran, I would not know why he wouldn't tear up that agreement given what he said at the UN. Any further comment on that? It seems to me the logic of it is that this agreement has got to go. I assume, and, and here I am getting completely out of my depth, I have absolutely no standing at all to, to purport to know or even have a informed intuition about what is in the back of his mind on this subject, but as much as I, I, I do, assume as much as I do, warming, 
Sorry? As much, I said as much as I do. So go yeah, ahead. You're, I, you're, but you're I, I assume he's... Here. Well, yeah, but the people in his position should should be a little mysterious. You know? It's you not betcha. a bad thing. But, but the... the um, uh, I, I assume that what he's doing is associating the problems of the non-proliferation regime that are highlighted by North Korea with with the Iranian situation, where it's really just a green light to another a nuclear power that cannot be trusted with nuclear weapons, but on the installment plan, thanks to President Obama and those he dragooned with him into agreeing to that terrible deal, uh, if the Iranians choose to wait that long, the inspection regime is so porous they could develop the weapons without waiting for 10 years if they wanted to. But the... Um, uh, that he, he wanted to make the connection that he was serious about stopping North Korea from being a nuclear power, but he was about Iran also. And secondly, he wanted to put down a marker that uh, he, he was he was not prepared to, to even if he serves a full eight years. In theory, that I think there'll still be a few months left in that in that agreement, and he is not prepared to sit passively all the way through that time. He wants to renegotiate it. And um, and but I think this is the beginning of a of a poker game in which he will provide a series of uh, sticks and carrots, mm-hmm. uh, not a not a uh, a process that's ever yielded the slightest success with with this regime in Iran. But he's going to do it, and he's starting out now to make it clear to them that they should not be sitting complacently like Cheshire cats. Imagine they're in a perfect glide path into being a nuclear military power because it's not on. And I think that's what he was doing, but there was room for some discussion about whether the exact wording and the exact timing were the best. But those are decisions that have to be made by people who have the authority and have the facts, and I'm afraid I'm not in either category. All right, let's talk about North Korea then for a minute, given the clarification or suggestion that you made earlier, which is that we talk about the regime or the military capability of North Korea and not the entire country and all its people. Will this thing end in fire, you think, or not? I think that the probability, not the high probability, but the narrow probability is it will end in in an act, in a military act, but not one that leads to a war and not one that leads to substantial collateral damage or 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 a significant number of civilian dead um what kind of I, what I, kind of military act would that be uh, well I, I suspect because the north koreans have completely outsmarted and gamed three successive previous american administrations and they, they, you know, they took the Clinton administrations, I believe, more than four billion dollars, and then just ignored their commitments and so forth. I, 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 in in general, in my experience, people believe what they want to believe, and and, and especially uh, people not accustomed to, to dealing with the normal constraints of uh, life in a legally organized society, like you and I and your listeners are. Uh, a North Korean dictator is the son and grandson of North Korean dictators. I, I think would just be skeptical that it wasn't really the same old, the same old gang of appeasers in Washington. Why should I pay any more attention to them than my father and grandfather did? Uh, I'm talking about after General MacArthur is the only person this whole thing who had it right, by the way, uh, apart from his supporters like Mr. Nixon. But um, uh, the 
I, I think they are not going to take the American warning seriously enough, soon enough, and I think that we're going to get to the point very soon when General Mattis and Mr. Pompeo, director of the CIA, and others are going to say, look, they are right at the point of having a deliverable nuclear capacity. It's now or never if you want to stop them. And I think what would happen is uh, you'd get a massed cruise missile attack coming on a route through South Korea at a very low altitude, hitting all of that artillery focused on Seoul uh, to, to a preemptive strike to stop an attack on Seoul, which is the big, right. uh, you know, the, right. the big gun that that um, Kim has at the head of the South Koreans, and simultaneously, uh, conventional strikes from from air launched and sea launched and ground launched missiles uh, on and and some large bombs also uh, on the um, on the entire range of their nuclear facilities all the launch sites all the stockpiles all the laboratories and they know where they are and they will they could take all that down quite quickly the danger I mean, by which i mean in one minute the danger would be uh, that artillery right up at the border directed at Seoul must be on a hair trigger firing yeah. plan. So you've got to get that before yeah. before they have any notice of an attack. Yeah. But I, I believe the military action would be over in an hour, and there would be a statement made publicly and also given to the North Koreans via the Chinese, who would, I'm sure, carry the message all right, that... Um, there was no attempt at regime change. There was no attempt at unification of the peninsula. But that if there was any military contract, the counterattack from the United States and its allies would end the North Korean regime. And um, and and I, I think that's what's. I, I think the probability is that's what's going to happen. In my opinion, the second alternative is slightly less likely that the North Koreans will. Um, be persuaded to to aim for a somewhat Iran-like arrangement, and and then the the third probability, which would have been the the only one in my opinion under the immediately preceding administration, is just to sit there and let it happen yeah. and say, well, ho hum, you know, we were worried about Pakistan and we were worried about South Africa, but here we are, and uh, you know. Kim would know that if he made right. war on somebody, he'd be destroyed. So let's not get too excited. And I don't, I, I don't think this administration thinks that's an option. And I, I salute them for it. It isn't an option. Or it I shouldn't be. Too. I do too. Thoughtful answer uh, and uh, and a direct answer, and I much appreciate it. Conrad Black, Lord Black, thank you very much. Uh, Always a pleasure, Bill. Hope we talk you. again soon. All right. Well, a great conversation with Conrad Black, uh, Lord Black, still a member of, of the House of Lords, Chris. Did you note that? Okay. I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We don't keep track of those things so well here. Anyway, um, if you're not running for Senate, we don't know what you're what you're up to. But, there are no uh, formers, I guess. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. There are no right. formers, just like the Marines. That's right. There are no formers. No, I think there are. <laughs> Great Britain, I think there are former members. Anyway, um, but that aside, a couple of thoughts on uh, on Conrad Black. Uh, first of all, probably best to listen to the interview again with uh, your dictionary and thesaurus, Andy. You agree, Chris? I mean, it's a wonderful vocabulary. Yeah, there's a, f- a few there that went right over my head. I think of one of the listeners to the radio show that uh, we used to be involved in, where uh, involved in heck that we used to run, where a person was recalling Bill Buckley and said, 
I just I decided the first time I heard him, I just want to get to the point where I understand the meaning of every word he uses. Then I'll regard <laughs> myself as an educated person. Uh, one could say the same about Lord Black. The other thing about uh, Conrad, um, uh, apart from his just beautiful phrasing and, and thoughtfulness, is you know the direct answers to questions. I have been looking for someone to tell me what happens in North Korea if you use military options short of you know blowing up the country or you know a, a nuclear nuclear war and he gave us an answer um i i would emphasize that the the last part of that answer was the critical part it's that it's that line that perimeter of weaponry um north of uh, you know at the ver- at the very edge of uh, North Korea that's so troubling aimed you know at Seoul and you've got to be sure to take all that out, um, um, or otherwise you can end up uh, seeing a lot of damage inflicted on Seoul. I think the cruise missile idea is very interesting. I'm not expert enough to know whether that makes sense. We welcome comments from uh, from listeners. But that was indeed a direct answer. Any comment, Chris? Yeah, I think that was the first time I've actually heard someone lay it out that yeah. explicitly. Yeah. Uh, you know, these cruise missiles, low altitude, and take out... Um, the rockets pointed at South Korea, and I think he highlighted the risk in that. Uh, but it was interesting to at least hear someone lay out that option. You bet. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, I want to change gears and talk about the economy a little bit. We can't forget about the economy, whether it's immigration, trade, automation, or just terrible economic policies coming from Washington. There's a substantial subset of the American population that's left behind economically. It just so happens that they're also the ones at the epicenter of this horrible opioid crisis. As a governing party, we need to understand why this is happening and what we can do to fix it. Someone who knows a lot about this topic and can cut through a lot of the bulls surrounding it is Joel Farkas, a businessman responsible for producing and generating a lot of wealth and job creation in the United States. He understands how the economy works. Joel is also a director of the American Strategy Group, and as you know, each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of the republic and its citizens. I'm proud to say that I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group. To learn more about it, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Welcome back to the program, Joel. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. Thank you. All right. This is the beginning of a conversation. We're going to have uh, several of these, but I just I just want to put a couple of toes in. Uh, I was in New York recently. I told you about this, Joel, when we were together uh, beforehand. I said I was going to be discussing inequality with a professor from the Harvard Business School. Some people in the audience made me feel as if conservatives were responsible for inequality, even uh, that we're for inequality uh, in a way that in a way that liberals are not. Help us uh, sort this out. Uh, Madison talks about the, the, the fundamental sources of inequality, which he said it exists in all times and all places, are the unequal faculties of men. Uh, some people can do some things, other people can't. Uh, but a good society tries to give opportunity uh, to, uh, to all its citizens, whatever the natural distribution of talents. Help us sort through this, Joel. Go ahead. Well... Today, our progressive friends like to describe inequality um, not like Madison, but more along the lines of 
of huge power based on wealth. Uh, they 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 they, po- they focus on um, uh, of all things uh, billionaires and uh, Walmart heirs and 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 all kinds of banks and Wall Street and the like. And that's their their basic definition of inequality. It's they acknowledge that people are are not the same and they have some unequal unequal um, abilities. But their real focus is wealth and power. The problem with that definition is power takes a lot of other forms other than wealth. It's, it's political power. It's, uh, it's controlling the education system. It's controlling uh, the access to jobs. Power is, is a ubiquitous term. It's not just simply a wealth term. And that's where the, the identification of this issue of inequality it's just absolutely wrong. It's, it's, it's quite frankly intellectually ignorant for, uh, you know, professors like Paul Krugman or the Labor Secretary Robert Reich to, to say this is the issue and here are our solutions. And you know, the kind of solutions that the, that the former Labor Secretary pose are let's, let's uh, restrict and contain uh, Wall Street. Let's, let's redistribute. Uh, let's... Uh, regulate. Uh, it, it's, it's just a combination of really negative, pejorative ways of dealing with something which is just the wrong problem. There's not one, okay. one uh, solution either of these sorts of people offer to, um, to the people that, that really need and should have the opportunity. It is a, it's a series of restrictions. But what about, uh, there are some statistics that people cite, and I think some of these have a factual basis, uh, that goes along these lines. If you looked 30 years ago at, uh, at, the, at the bottom 50% uh, of American society economically, it would have controlled X amount of wealth. If you look at that bottom 50% now, it controls or has uh, 50% of that X, uh, 40% of that X. That is, uh, it, its share of the pie seems to be shrinking, while at the top, the share seems to be getting larger. Is that true? And if so, what do we make of it? Should we be outraged by that fact? When I took statistics in college, I, I learned that statistics can say what you want them to say. Uh-huh. Certainly, those stats are correct. What also is true is while uh, uh, many people are billionaires, the other thing that is true is that there are nations that control more power than these people who are trillionaires. We have something, uh, an organization that few people are aware of. It's called the Bank for International Settlements. 60 nations, 60 central banks are the only members of the Bank for International Settlements. More than five trillion, not billion, trillion dollars a day are traded in currencies. Um, it is absolutely true there are, are uh, uh, statistical disparities of who has more than others. But if we really want to look and be honest about statistics, we should look at sovereign wealth, front, wealth funds, uh, nations, power, the powerful nations of the world who have way, way, way more power than some of the, the, the boogeymen that people like to point to. It's very, very simple to look at Sam Walton's uh, kids and say they're really bad people. Um, but 
but they have they, what, their, their, their influence on what's going on in the world is really non-existent. Yeah, okay. These, this is a distinction about power, right? Not just not just wealth, but there are there is some truth to this wealth point, correct, Joel? I mean, uh, the, the 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 rich ha- do, do seem to have been doing very well lately, and why is that? And uh, and the poor seem to be doing worse, and and why is that? The reason the poor are being are doing worse is, and by the way, it's just it's a terrible term to use the word poor. But in the United States, if you're a high school graduate. Or if you're someone who started college and didn't finish didn't finish college, that that is going to put you in a category where you're not going to be able to get a very good job that pays very much. That's the tragedy. The tragedy is not how much um, uh, other people make. The tragedy is that the, our our citizens, we the 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 time frame you discussed um, uh, uh, several decades ago. When you, when you graduated and had a high school degree, that meant something. Uh, just because you did not have a four-year college degree, that didn't mean you were going to be relegated to a service job making no money, not being able to afford food, electricity, and housing. Yeah. Those are, that's the tragedy. And you said, quite frank, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. No, no, because I, I made a note of a couple of things you said uh, the other day when we were... We were uh... Previewing this interview, that is, you, you talked about the knowledge class and the knowledge class having a real advantage, um, and and never more so. Um, I think it was Charles Murray who said, "The sheer dollar value of intellectual capital, intellectual capital, has never been greater," um, and, and and that's true, right? If you if you have that knowledge, you're part of that knowledge class. Your odds of uh, being wealthy are much much better. Your odds of being wealthy are substantially better, and your odds of living either on the in a metropolitan area on the west coast or east coast are almost certain. And therefore, you can afford to live in those places. If you don't have that kind of income and that kind of uh, 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 gross value of uh, in a dollar terms, uh, anybody else who has a regular normal job is effectively shut out of being able to live in, in some of these expensive, uh, well-known coastal cities. And by the way, if I live in one of those coastal cities, along with my wealth, do I have to, you know, I'm familiar with the electoral map, do I have to vote Democrat and liberal? Uh, if you're uh, if you're in the major metropolitan area in the actual city, I think you have to. I think yeah, you I think have it's, to. It's, 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 it's the rules. I think you do. It's the rules. The rule. The the other thing that we talked about, and I mentioned this, and you you liked it, so I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. And I brought this up in the in the discussion that uh, I had in New York, is if you take you, know, you said you said the poor, you know, it's a, in many ways an unfortunate term, but I pointed out that if you are born poor, very poor, uh, for example, but 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 you follow what's called the success sequence. If you graduate from high school, if you hold a job. If you get married and do not have children before you get married, your odds at living at twice the poverty level are about 90 or 95 percent. This has been borne out by Brookings, by the Rand studies and others. So upward mobility, maybe not to the top rung, certainly, but upward mobility is still possible in American society if you do certain things. You absolutely can. And I would add to, to that wonderful 
list of, of characteristics. You should, you should move out of coastal cities, move to Nashville, move to San Antonio, Fresno, Omaha, Jacksonville, Indianapolis, Arizona, move to Colorado, move somewhere else in this country where the opportunity exists, a small town, a less than massively large failed city. You'll be able to afford electricity. You'll be able to afford housing. You'll be able to attend, have your children attend good schools. You can combine the income that you can make in those cities along with a very realistic, reasonable, affordable way of life. And you can do that once you graduate high school. By the time you're 40 years old, if you do those things, you will have saved a lot of money and you will have a, a very good nest egg in your home. Thinking of your outline, your, the excellent outline you did. Um, for example, I can do this if I become a welder. We can be. A, we need carpenters. We need welders, brick masons, stone masons, pipe fitters. How much money can I make if I do that? Uh, you can make fifty dollars a year. My uh, the average. Uh, the average uh, 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 salary earned for trade jobs, which, by the way, we have a lack of, of uh, we have a, a whole bunch of trade jobs that cannot be filled. Um, as much immigration as we have in the United States right now, as of a, a month or two ago, we have 6.2 million jobs in this country unfilled. So immigration obviously is not filling those jobs. We have a, a plenty of them, but we need we need the, the kids who have the skills. Which, by the way, none of these jobs in the trades require anything more than a high school education. They need some skills okay. in the in the particular craft. But we could actually easily have our kids who graduate high school or who don't who don't graduate college go right into those professions, make fifty thousand dollars plus or minus a year which isn't is it, it, just absolutely way way better okay. than the than the, the the average salary in the United States. We're talking to Joel Farkas. Joel, um yeah, I I'd be a rich man if I had a dollar for every time I have talked to an employer or owner of a company who has said give me a young person with a good attitude who will show up on time, has some basic skill, uh is not on drugs and uh I will make uh, give that man an opportunity or woman that opportunity to live a very comfortable life. You cited an example in our discussion about uh, something of common interest. Uh, the the, the uh, Los Angeles Raiders, is that what they're called now, uh, to become the Las Vegas Raiders, and you were talking about the guys who work on the glass? Um, in Las Vegas, there's going to be a new football stadium built. Um, most of the stadium is just... Is, is it's beautiful and it's going to have a lot of glass, which means they're going to hire a lot of glaziers, people who are skilled in the trades of setting and cutting and uh, installing glass. The current uh, approximate uh, hourly rate for a glazier in that area is about $30. During this period of time of a couple of years building the stadium, that salary will double um, because there's not enough Skilled labor. 60 bucks an hour. Is that what you're saying? 60, $60 an hour is the projected estimated rate for people to come and work there. 
that is a very, very good wage. 500 a day, uh, 20 work days in the, in the month. That's, yeah, 10000 That's pretty good money, isn't it? It's very good money, and 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 all of the costs of living, food, housing, electricity. And by the way, one of the big uh, uh, barriers that are cited by um, uh, the the people I referred to earlier, the, the economists and the labor secretary, is the high cost of utilities. Well, we've talked about energy many times. If we have in, in the world, not only in the United States, but in the world, abundant, low-cost energy that inures directly to the people most in need. Yeah, um, We don't need to get into that again today, but that's just another one of those policy issues that if you restrict and regulate and cut off, then you're going to increase the cost and you are going to hurt the people who have the least ability to pay for it. It's a question I often get asked, but I want to ask you this question as we draw toward a close of this uh, first chapter on uh, on equality and inequality. How how much fault here is the education system? I'm thinking of an education system which has tended to devalue people who know how to do things with their hands and uh, you know who know how to make things and fix things. Uh, how much how much blame? Uh, responsibility we put on that system. I remember, I'll just tell you quickly, when I was Secretary of Education, the the vocational education, the trades part, was kind of an orphan. You know, nobody really wanted to acknowledge it. I did, even though I did my degree in philosophy, which is hardly, you know, immediately practical. Uh, but is that part of the problem? Have we devalued these very important skills? The education system is abysmal. And, and, and again, to restate what we talked about a bit ago, when you graduate today with a high school degree, when you attend college but don't get your four-year four degree, um, we just had an election where those people were referred to as deplorable. Yep. They're not deplorable. They just yep. didn't. They just got a high school degree. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. And. We need to be our 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 our, our trades tradesmen tradesmen working, and I apologize for using the word tradesmen, but people who work in the trades is a very aging population. Most more than fifty percent are over or are, are older than forty five years old. I would like to see our skilled trades uh, uh, tradesmen. When, as they're leaving the profession, come into our our, K through, our our middle schools and high schools and train our kids, train their replacements. They, uh, we, Home Depot sells, is, is a very, very uh, successful retailing operation. The people that you go into and get helped are retired people from the construction industries. Uh-huh. Absolutely no reason why we can't hire our retiring uh, people who are skilled in trades to come and, and help help our kids learn something of extreme value that we, this is not something that we have to worry about what's going to happen 10 years from now and be futurists. We, we, we need this now. We need this today. And it's, it's, um, uh, um, so yes, the education system has been an abysmal failure because it focuses almost exclusively on, on kids 
getting a four-year degree or post, uh, postgraduate degree. Um, that's, that's just uh, unfair. And, and kind of un, unspoken but nevertheless present a condescending attitude, attitude toward people who know how to do things with their hands. When I, um, I'd like to share a, a brief story of one of my business endeavors about 20 years ago. Um, I developed a housing community for an area which was predominantly minority. And it, we were selling homes, brand new homes, for 79, starting at $79,900 up to about $145,000 for a brand new home with garages. Very few people who bought homes in this community had a post had a had a college education or a postgraduate degree. Almost all of them were high school graduates and thereabouts. Almost all of them worked in the kinds of professions were professions we're describing. And over the last twenty years, there was eleven hundred families that moved into this community. Those eleven hundred families their homes are now worth more than $100,000 than when they first bought them. That equates to more than $100 million of wealth given to people who basically are the, uh, have the educational description that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. I don't know of any local, state, or federal program that could possibly allow these talented, hardworking, determined people to earn a hundred million dollars of wealth. And, and those are the kinds of ways that we help. We, when I say we help, I didn't help them. They, they took the risk. They moved in, they worked. That's a great story. That's a great story. And I think uh, a great story for us to end, uh, Lisa's first chapter of this, uh, discussion of this very, very important uh, and often contentious topic. Joel Farkas, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Okay, we have to leave it there for today, Joel. That's a show, folks. Boy, that is a show. If you're tuning in for the first time, please subscribe on iTunes so you can hear all of my podcast episodes and my interviews with people like Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary Tom Price, Rick Perry, and the other members of the new team, the new administration. Talk to you all next week. This has been the Bill Bennett Show.